As I said, though, we are starting the show talking about the ousting of Aaron O'Toole. Take a listen to this quick exchange. Reporters talking to Conservative MPs in Ottawa. Yes, you can hear honking in the background because of the convoy that is still there. Some of the questions put to one of the Conservative MPs outside. There are certainly issues on which from time to time there are different opinions. Um, but uh, it can be quite fluid in terms of people having different perspectives on, on one issue today and then, and then uh, being aligned with others on a different day. Uh, there, are, there are many significant, challenging and complex issues facing this country. And uh, I remain extremely optimistic about the future of the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, the, the political party that, uh, that founded Canada, a political party that, um, uh, that, that has united this country from coast to coast, that has strong representation uh, in caucus from, from all across the country. Uh, I, I believe in this party. I'm optimistic about its future. All right, that was Conservative MP Garrett Genius outside in Ottawa asking or responding to reporter questions. Let's bring in Stuart Prest, lecturer with SFU in the Department of Political Science. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. It's a pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts? A lot of optimism there from that Conservative MP. I'm not sure everybody shares the optimism, at least in the short-term future. Your thoughts, though, on Aaron O'Toole being voted out as leader? Well, the result of the vote was pretty definitive. So at the end of the day, it was uh, it, it was uh, clearly, uh, according to the caucus, time for him to go. So the party is going to be looking at uh, uh, taking a new direction here, a, a different direction here. So in that sense, if it's going to be unified, it's going to be unified in, in, in a different sort of way. And I think uh, in the background through this leadership of Mr. O'Toole has been, uh, in a sense, a, a divide between uh, conservatives of a more sort of a right-wing bent and perhaps on a social conservative side or or uh, embracing some of the more populist messages we've heard in Canada in the last uh, couple of years on all sorts of issues uh, and and a more moderate approach and uh, in late last night and, and some final tweets on the matter uh, Mr. O'Toole made it clear he he saw the direction of the party being uh, trying to court some of those more moderate voters who, who may be thinking of voting liberals but are also getting tired of of, uh, of Justin Trudeau and so I think whoever comes in to, to replace Mr. O'Toole is going to, to have to navigate that divide which seems to persist across any number of issues from response to COVID to environmental issues and on and on. Is there a way do you think to unify party a party when there are so many when it appears like a party in this case it appears there are people that are very far apart on certain issues and that's been one of the criticisms of Aaron O'Toole is this idea of trying to please everybody. Is it even possible to bring everybody and kind of bring them under the same umbrella? I think it's a, it's a good question. And, and the answer, uh, I mean, it may be possible for a particular leader to, to find the right mix of, of messaging that they can, can say just enough to keep both sides uh, uh, content. But uh, I I don't know that it, there's any guarantee that anyone can do that because in, in many ways these are polar opposite views on on the issues that that matter most to Canadians right now do you do you favor continuing some some measure of, of max uh, mandates to to respond to the, the covid crisis the vaccine mandates and uh, so on that's a, a divisive issue within the conservative party do you favor action on on uh, climate change to try to move Canada towards a more low carbon economy that's 
remains a very divisive issue within the Conservative Party. And so if you say yes, you are uh, going to alienate some Conservative supporters. And if you say no, you'll alienate others. And so that's, that's a difficult uh, set of, uh, of issues to, to reconcile. And, and the fact that it, it recurs again and again uh, on, on so many issues just heightens the, the problems. There are only so many issues on which you can find agreement among members of that Conservative movement. And with the new leader, we'll, we should find out at least who the new interim leader is later on today. Uh, how big of a, a job is it going to be or is it even possible? I mean, that person, whoever it is, is going to have to stop that fighting or at least bring it, it to a point where the party doesn't implode. Yeah, it's going to be take a, a fair amount of political acumen just to, to get the, the party through through to that, that vote, given how how those divisions continue to, to percolate up. And uh, I think uh, it, it is an opportunity for the Conservative Party to, to have a, a more explicit form of that debate, which didn't exactly materialize, or if it did materialize in the last leadership race between Mr. O'Toole and, and Peter McKay, if anything, uh, and this was one of the biggest knocks against Mr. O'Toole, is that he sounded like he was on the other side of that divide during that leadership race. And then once he, he won, the, the leadership started to move in a more moderate direction. And and so I expect in this forthcoming conversation, the, the party will, will talk to itself about where it wants to land in, in, in those in those different issues. And so at least it will be a, a transparent discussion, or one hopes it will be a, a transparent discussion for the party and, and, and clarify where where it stands at, at the end of the day. But it, it uh, could well be a, uh, a bit of a dust-up along the way. And when we look back at the history of the leadership of this party, if we look back at how Stephen Harper led the party, uh, Andrew Scheer at Aaron O'Toole, this is a party that came very close at one point as well to voting in Maxime Bernier as the leader. He was uh, did well, actually, in that vote when he was trying to go for the leader. How has it changed or how will it change, do you think, as it goes forward? Um, again, it's it's a good question. I, I honestly don't know the answer entirely. I'm sure there will be uh, some looking to try to to recreate that that sort of Harper uh, coalition uh, of the party, which did seem to to bring together some of those different factions of, of the party. But I think the problem, in some ways, is is not just that the, the party has changed, but the country has changed. Where uh, it, a decade ago, it was possible to to form government where issues, say, around uh, action on climate. Uh, would not be at the forefront of, of voters' minds, but but we're no longer in that world where we we see the effects of a change in climate uh, front and center. We still have a barge parked in the middle of of uh, Vancouver's uh, uh, waterways, but it, it's it's impossible to miss. And so more and more voters are are thinking about those issues. And so the party has had to try to evolve, but but the problem is it's, it's evolving in in different directions at the same time on, on those 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 core issues that that voters are thinking about now. And so I think. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see whether the, anyone can can pull together that that kind of uh, of consensus that will unite these different coalitions or f- discover a different one. Because it, it's clear that there's a great deal of discontent within the country right now. We see uh, not um, not a majority of Canadians, but but polling suggests that there are a significant number of Canadians who have support for something like that truckers' convoy. We could hear in the background of the clip at the start of the segment. So there is discontent there to to be tapped into. It's just a question of what kind of 
message can can win those voters over, and also some of the, the uh, more moderate Canadians who who may look askance at uh, at the, the convoy and and are still concerned about things like uh, action action on COVID, and who still understand we're in the middle of a pandemic, whether we want to be or not. And just one other question, and looking at those numbers and the final results on this vote to remove Aaron O'Toole as leader were, I think it was 73 to 45. So that shows obviously a fracture in the party. Do you think the next leader, and again, whoever that is, is the focus on voters and getting voter support, or is the focus fixing that fracture within the party? Uh, I'm sure they will uh, attempt to, to do both, but uh, I think the the it's going to be a, a set of candidates who are going to very likely have to, to pick a side in, in that debate. I, I think one of the lessons that everyone will, will take from the O'Toole leadership is that attempting to, to ride effectively two different horses going in two different directions at the same time is not going to work. The, the, the flip-flopping that we saw from Mr. O'Toole was uh, a result of him trying to satisfy these two different groups that can't be uh, satisfied uh, at, at, at the same time, you've got to perhaps disappoint some voters. And I think we will start to see candidates uh, do that more explicitly, trying to, to build a, a message that they, they will argue will appeal to enough Canadians to, to win the next election. This is, after all, a party that, that uh, won an election in the not-so-distant past. And so they're not giving up on, uh, on knocking off Mr. Joe next time around. So they'll be looking for somebody who can, can make a claim that they have a message that will carry the day. All right, Stuart Prest, we'll leave it there. But again, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Wanted to let you know that a bit later on this afternoon, we are going to be giving away some more tickets to the show Noises Off. It's coming to the Massey Theatre in New Westminster. This is for the February 17th show. We've got another four pack of tickets to give away on the program today. But I want to also let you know that the fine people at the Arts Club Theatre, those putting on this show, are also offering up a great deal for healthcare and frontline workers, as well as performing arts workers. They are giving people in those groups 50% off to see the production of Noises Off any day during its run. So uh, you'll want to check that out. We'll have more information on that coming up on the program as well. But half-price tickets for anybody that works in healthcare and frontline workers and performing arts workers as well. And again, you'll get a chance to win a four-pack of tickets a bit later on in this program. Right now, though, we are going to talk about property tax deferrals and some freedom of information, a freedom of information request reveals that BC property tax deferrals have spiked sharply. And joining us to talk more about this is Paul Sullivan, principal and regional leader with the Ryan LLC. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Paul. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Nice, nice to hear from you. Perfect. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Can you talk a little bit more? This, uh, as I mentioned, was a freedom of information request. So what specifically were you looking for as far as tax deferrals in this province? Well, I was looking at a number of things. I wanted to look at the tax recovery this government has created through all their buyers tax, speculation tax. You know what, Paul, we're going to have to try and get you back on the line. My apologies. Um, 
Paul, you're, uh, the sound quality there, I couldn't hear what you were saying. Sorry about that. Sometimes we get uh, a phone line that just isn't clear enough. We're going to try and get Paul back on the line. I couldn't, uh, so we can hear what he was saying, uh, because uh, we do want to hear more about that story. So we're talking about property tax deferrals. And again, this was a freedom of information request, taking a look at those referrals, specifically in the five-year period, the previous five years, and taking a look at BC homeowners and many of those in Metro Vancouver who are really struggling when it comes to paying those taxes, whether it's a speculation tax or a school tax and taxes that are put on certain properties that are over a certain amount. All right, I think we have Paul back on the line with us. Paul, can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure can. Oh, much better. Uh, Sorry about that. We just couldn't hear what you were saying, and I think this is very important information for people. So uh, start over if you could and talk a little bit about what specifically you were looking at with this Freedom of Information request. Well, I mean, I was looking uh, to investigate how this government was doing in all their their new taxes, how much, you know, additional school tax, foreign buyers tax, speculation tax. Um, I wanted to analyze how, how much we have been actually bringing in against budget, and that was a very difficult number to, to find. But then, as important, I want to see how the homeowners were doing and paying for the new taxes, particularly the additional school tax, because that's an annual tax placed on, on homeowners. And, um, you know, in British Columbia, if you have a principal residence of 10 years, you may defer your taxes. And what, what we found is the amount of deferred taxes has doubled in five years which to me says we have an increasing problem here. And we're adding about $200 million a year to the tax deferral program. So basically, homeowners are putting themselves into debt to pay for taxes. And you mentioned some of the taxes there. So did this find if it's mainly things like that school tax for certain properties, or is it property taxes, all of people's property taxes, if they do qualify for a deferral? Well, it, it's certainly going to be both. Um, of course, you can only defer property tax, of which the additional school tax is one of them. And, um, you know, the, the number of people deferring their taxes has doubled and the value of the taxes being deferred has doubled in five years. And so I guess what that means is, is you know, people, like I say, putting themselves into debt to, to pay for government. And really what we need to have is... is, is um, budgets come back into line. You know, we're five, seven percent per year increase in budgets on top of these new taxes and homeowners are, are, are just not able to pay. And were you looking specifically at Vancouver or were you looking BC wide? This study is BC wide, um, but I was particularly interested in Vancouver because the additional school tax, which I suspected was going to be one of the causes of this deferral, um, primarily falls on Vancouver. You know, Mayor Kennedy Stewart voted in favor for additional school tax, knowing that the vast majority of it was coming from his constituents in the city of Vancouver. So I, I, I never thought it was a fair or reasonable tax to impose. They brought these taxes in under the guise of creating affordable housing. They've failed miserably. And I think people are starting to realize, even Minister Eby's saying now, taxes aren't a creating affordable housing. So it's not the solution. 
And I think they need to rescind these taxes and, and get on with building homes. That's what that's what's going to create some affordability. Uh, and uh, David Eby, the minister, was on this program last week and, and talked about that and had some pretty, uh, pretty big numbers when it comes to population growth and how many people are moving to Vancouver and to Metro Vancouver as well. And that, that was also his point, that there needs to be more building, there needs to be more streamlining of approval, uh, the approval process in many cases to build more housing. When you look at, at this particular issue, though, of people deferring taxes, what does it tell you about what's going to happen in that when do they, do they plan on paying the taxes? Is it kind of as awful as this sounds? Is it waiting out the clock until the property is passed down? Yeah, effectively, that's what happens. People leave, leave the debt in their estate. And, you know, the family of the estate typically will take will and use those funds to buy themselves homes and and that's how a lot of people get into the home market is is from inheritance and uh, that's being eroded through this government debt and it's one of the unfortunate circumstances that we're gonna we're gonna see coming out of this is money's money's just gonna funnel back to government not gonna funnel down into into people's pockets to to pay for daily needs such as homes Do you think there would be a better way of if the tax is here to stay, which often when taxes are brought in, they do stick around. Is there a better way to to make the tax equitable or fair in that when you're talking about, say, a three million dollar house, there's a big difference between a three million dollar house that somebody bought 30 years ago and a three million dollar house that somebody bought three months ago. Could there be a different way of putting the taxes or, or levying the taxes on homes based on that? Well, I mean, what you're talking about is Proposition 13, which is what they do in California. You, you, you pay property tax based on the price you pay for your home, and it stays at that value until such time it transacts again. Um, you know, th- th- there's not our, our property tax system is considered to be one of the best in the world. It's ad valorem taxation. Everybody gets taxed on the value of their property at a set date. It works well. What's not working well are municipal budgets. They're going up at 5 to 7% per year. We've lost sight of core services, fire, safety, engineering, planning, permits. This is the function of municipalities, and they have ballooned the, their, their, their non-core services to the point that they're asking the property tax vehicle to pay for something it wasn't designed for. And so really therein lies the problem. It, it, it's, it's reckless spending on behalf of municipalities. And is is it fair to put everybody kind of in the same boat? Because when you give those numbers as well, there certainly is a difference if you're looking at how property taxes have gone up, say, in the city of Vancouver compared to the city of Port Coquitlam. Are, are there some places or, or does this information show uh, not as many deferrals in places where the property taxes have stayed at a more reasonable increase level? I'm not sure that, that, that I have a granular enough review of, of the, the issue to be that concise. I will say that some jurisdictions, some municipalities are, are keeping their budgets in far better control than others. You know, you can look across Canada through the pandemic years, Calgary, Toronto, keeping their municipal tax increases at zero to two, no more than 2%. You know, you, you have to look at that as a responsible behavior of government. And when we're starting to do 5 to 7% per year, that's out of hand. And, and that's not behaving the way that the citizens are having to behave in light of all the difficulties and rising costs in this day and age. So unfortunately, they're going to have to rein it in. Otherwise, people are going to build up their debt to the government and not pay their property taxes.
Uh, the information that you uh, gleaned from this as well, from this Freedom of, Freedom of Information request, also takes a look at housing starts. That's also something the housing minister talked about on this program, saying it is uh, crucial that the housing along the Broadway corridor, corridor get approved, that that be built and not be still waiting in the wings when after the Broadway mm-hmm. is built. Um, you found out information, though, about housing starts, and it's not exactly favorable to that. No, we, we, we are actually. I looked at I looked at city of Vancouver specifically a little while ago, and we have a declining rate on a quarter by quarter basis of approvals for low density housing projects, like simple stuff, you know, like our, our basic C two throughout all our commercial nodes, not high rises and complex multi use developments which take five or seven years, but just townhouses, row housing. We we are declining rate of approvals for these things, and we have two times as many um, applications for this type of product than we used to. We have thousands of units, both rental units and housing units of all form, that can't get built because they can't get permits. It's a serious problem. I mean, Mr. Eby's right. We've got at least 50,000 immigrants coming this year. We've got federal policies that encourage working in Canada. We have temporary labor of 140,000 per year coming into British Columbia. They all need to live somewhere. And we've got pent-up demand. All those, you know, 40, 50,000-year immigrants that, that come to BC, we've had none for the past couple of years. I don't think that 50,000 is correct. I think it's going to be substantially more because of the pent-up demand. So, We've got people coming and we aren't approving homes to get built. We're going to have a crisis on our hands. We already do. And Paul, just one uh, final question then. What would be the first step, do you think? Is it is it figuring out the tax system and bringing that more in line with what is reasonable for people to pay? Or is it working on housing starts and the approval process and streamlining that? Well, I mean, if, if you were talking about creating affordable housing, um, we need to build homes. There's no question. Property taxes, as they continue to escalate, are making housing, owning housing, less affordable. So we've got two, two problems on our hands here. One's an ongoing making Vancouverites less able to afford to live on, in their homes. And then there's people that can't get homes because we're not building any. I mean, we need to fix both these problems. All right, Paul, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this information. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Well, we are talking about what's happening now in Port Coquitlam, where councillors have approved amendments to provide a bit more clarity when it comes to rules in that city and aggressive dogs. Under some new rules, dogs that are deemed aggressive or dangerous and required to be muzzled will have to wear what is described as a humane basket-style muzzle to prevent them from biting. And this is a type of muzzle that would be instead of the devices that a lot of dog owners have been using, head straps or loops uh, and uh, the uh, other types uh, of ways of keeping control of a dog. So is this a good move? What is reaction to this sounding like? Let's check in with Rebecca Bretter, animal law lawyer with Bretter Law. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I haven't talked to you in ages. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? This was something that was being considered in Port Coquitlam. Now looks that uh, looks as though councillors have approved that, that approving, uh, that uh, the approving coming yesterday. What are your thoughts on mandating these types of basket muzzles? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I have to say, on the face of it, it's a good thing because uh, right now the Port Coquitlam bylaw is quite general in terms of the muzzling requirements, what type of muzzle is required. 
And Poco is pretty, Porco Quitlam is pretty unique like that. Most other jurisdictions don't have the definition of uh, what type of muzzle uh, a dog is required to have if they're deemed to be aggressive. A basketville uh, type of muzzle is much more humane. Dogs are able to pant, they're able to take treats, they're able to be dogs really without the ability to to bite uh, or injure another animal or person. Well, that said, I mean, there's always a possibility it could come off and all that. So on the face of it, it's good because some of the other muzzles that are out there on the market are terrible. They're so cruel. Like it's the cloth ones that go all the way around the, the snout and dogs aren't able to breathe properly and pant. And I mean, they shouldn't even be on the market to begin with. So on the face of it, yeah, it looks like it's a good thing. However, and there's a huge but on my on my end here, which is that it would be okay if the animal control bylaw when dealing with quote unquote aggressive or quote unquote dangerous dogs was good. Poor Coquitlam along I don't want to just you know uh, focus on on them in terms of how bad their animal control bylaw is, but um, it is, uh, as well as many other cities as well. We have to understand the way aggressive designations are made. First of all, just a definition of aggressive in Porco Quitlam, what is actually an aggressive dog? Porco Quitlam has uh, similar bylaws to some other ones, but even worse, I would say. Uh, the, definition, the definition of an aggressive dog, I'm not quoting, don't quote me like, I'm not quoting word for word, but it's something along the lines of a dog that has bit without provocation or injured without provocation and caused a minor injury. Okay, that part I could, I could deal with. The other part uh, to the definition that I have a huge issue with is that part of the definition of an aggressive dog is a dog that has assaulted pursued or harassed a person or animal or demonstrate a propensity to do that. So the issue that I have is what does assault mean? What does pursued mean? What does harass mean? Because that is very often in the eyes of the beholder. So as an example, you get someone who doesn't like pit bull type of dogs or is scared of dogs to begin with. And the dog just is off leash and wants to go up to the person to say hi. No aggressive tendency or aggressive intention on the part of the dog. He just wants to go up to say hi to a person. But that person may perceive that as a threat or as aggression. And I've seen this happen many, many times. And what happens, that person who perceives that threat calls animal control, says, hey, this dog wanted to attack me. And then animal control investigates it and determines that, yeah, actually it meets the definition of aggressive dog because the dog harassed or pursued, actually not so much harassed, but pursued a person. And then my clients would say, well, no, 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 my, my, my dog isn't aggressive. He just, yeah, maybe he's a little bit rambunctious and went over to a person and say hi, but he's never bitten or acted aggressively before. Yet then they get slapped um, with a letter from the city saying, as a result of an incident that happened on whatever date, uh, your dog is now deemed aggressive by the city of Port Coquillum, as an example. And so that's a big problem because in, in that particular example, the dog is not aggressive. It was a perception that came in the eyes of the beholder who perceived that threat, but it didn't actually happen. Right. And animal control officers 
are not animal behaviors. They're not trained in animal behavior. In fact, they're not even required to have training like that. Um, some of them take a course that's uh, offered in Langara College um, and, and a couple of other places about uh, about dog behavior and, and training, but very minimal, very, very minimal. So that, that's part of the issue that I have. If, if they're already amending bylaws, what would be amazing to see is a proper definition to uh, an aggressive dog, which would include, and this is me saying this coming from experience, which would include uh, a definition that would, uh, that would mandate that a qualified animal behaviorist gets involved before a dog is designated as aggressive. And the reason why that matters, let me just quickly say, the reason why that matters is because dogs that are slapped with this kind of designation, they're required to be muzzled for the rest of their lives. They're required to only be on leash on public, in public areas. Um, it comes with serious implications for both the dog and dog owner. Now, in Poco, there is, um, and they're, they're a little bit unique like this, there, there are only a couple of other jurisdictions in BC that do this, you're allowed to appeal that designation uh, after a year. But it's to the same department, and you know I have separate issues with that. But so it may not be for the lifetime of the dog. But in most other jurisdictions, including Vancouver, when someone gets a letter like that from animal control, most people think that they have to abide by that, which, which they don't. But that may be a topic for another. <laughs> um, <laughs> another it, it looks as though Port Coquitlam, in addition to changing to the basket type muzzle, if your dog is deemed aggressive or dangerous, they're also, they've also made some other changes when it comes to, I think if a dog bites, uh, the ticket can now be up to $375. Mm-hmm. And they've more clearly defined public place that it's, it's anything mm-hmm. from a highway, a street, a lane, a boulevard, a park, a uh, common property, that kind of thing. Does it come down to the owner, though? Shouldn't you as an owner or anybody as an owner know if your dog is dangerous or if your dog has a tendency to to, uh, to go after people and to, to yep. attack? Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. And most dog guardians are responsible. Where the problem lies, I mean, it's, it's even these with the higher fines and defining what a public space is. In theory, I agree with those changes. But the fundamental problem is that the people who determine who uh, is aggressive, like what dog is aggressive, are animal control officers or bylaw officers who are not animal behaviorists. And they, they simply cannot, should not be making those determinations, but they do all the time. And that's just the way our system works now, which so fundamentally our system is flawed. So I, on the face of it, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Increased fines for dogs biting, increased fines for uh, or, or define what a public space is and all of that. In theory, yeah, that, that would be great to do, but not don't do that unless the foundation is solid. And what I mean by that is that if we're going to be slapping these aggressive labels or dangerous dog labels on dogs, then do so properly by having qualified animal behaviorists at the very least involved in the process. And I think that that is something I get what you're saying there for sure. But just to look briefly again at the idea of the basket muzzle, and you kind of mentioned this off Mm -hmm. the top, one of the it was being just or being compared to something I think called the halty or the the uh, other things that that 
not strong enough to stop a dog from biting, but for an owner to have control. Uh, So do you think this will at least be better for for a responsible dog owner? If you know that there's the chance your dog is going to bite somebody, is it better for the dog that, yes, you're going to know that you have to use this basket type muzzle? Yeah, of course. Of course, it's better because the other one, oh, that's my little dog. <laughs> You're in the background. <laughs> um, yes, we're about this. Okay. Um, yeah, the other part that you were talking about is the, the gentle leader. And, uh, Bowen, sorry. That's okay. um, and yeah, it would be better. However, um, it, it's most, but actually, I, I would easily say that all responsible dog guardians who put a muzzle on their dog already use a Baskerville type of muzzle. They would never use the other type of, of muzzles. But that said, some people just honestly don't know. Like, they genuinely don't know and they don't realize that the type of muzzle that they're putting on their dog can actually cause more harm than good. So, yes, I mean, if they're going to be clarifying in the bylaw what type of muzzle is required, then, of course, I think it's a great thing that they're putting in a specific requirement that it's this Baskerville muzzle um, as opposed to any other type of muzzle. Yes. So, you know, I think that's good. But we cannot forget the broader context. And I cannot emphasize it enough about how our animal control bylaws that we have throughout British Columbia and including in Port Coquitlam when dealing with aggressive or dangerous dogs are fundamentally flawed because of the way uh, dogs are designated to be aggressive or dangerous. All right. We will leave it there. But Rebecca Bretter, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Thanks so much. Well, some new information that has been released from BC's Human Rights Commissioner shows that one in four British Columbians say they have experienced or witnessed hate incidents, and this since the start of the pandemic. And joining me to talk more about this is BC's Human Rights Commissioner, Kasari Govender. Kasari, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. What exactly did you ask people about hate incidents and what did you find from from going out and asking people what their experience has been? Well, you know, when we announced uh, that we were doing an inquiry into hate in the pandemic in uh, the end of, of last summer, we certainly knew that this was a huge issue of concern in our communities and really across the province. But doing this poll at this time really, really confirms that. We learned, um, as you just said, that 26% of British Columbians, more than one in four, have witnessed hate incidents during the pandemic. We learned that 80% of British Columbians are either very concerned or concerned about incidents of hate during the pandemic. Um, And this is all against the backdrop of just a constant barrage of news stories about incidents of hate and the statistics that show how big a problem hate is across the province. And when you look at the specific responses and and people who said that they had directly experienced a hate incident, others who had said they had witnessed a hate incident, what what types of incidents or was there any kind of common thread in what you were seeing or what you were hearing from people? You know, that's really what comes next in our in this stage, in this evidence gathering stage of our inquiry. So what we're asking people to do is really tell us, you know, now that we know some of the statistics behind some of the numbers of what's happening here, and we've been hearing all fall, we've been holding a series of hearings with community organizations to hear directly from them about what is the impact of hate on the communities that you serve and what, um, how have you responded to that, that hate. And now we're really looking to British Columbians to tell us, tell us your stories and what, 
we want to hear directly about what you're experiencing so that those experiences can inform our report and recommendations that we make about how to address hate in times of crisis. And you could do that by by filling out um, our online survey that we launched this week. All right, we'll get to, to uh, we can direct people where they can find that uh, in just a moment. But I wanted to ask you as well, when we talk about hate incident. It's it's a, a phrase that I think can be interpreted different ways. Obviously, uh, hate is a word that, that we can all kind of relate to. But what are we talking about specifically in that? Are we talking about racist attacks or attacks based on, on somebody for another reason or, or because perhaps of their living conditions? What kind of things are we talking about? We've adopted a really broad definition of hate for the purposes of this inquiry to make sure that we're getting the complete picture. So we're not just talking about hate crimes here. We're talking about incidents that are, you know, actions and speech, so violence, but also verbal abuse that is rooted in prejudice that in the view of the person who is experiencing it or witnessing it is based on a personal characteristic of theirs. Um, and I'm going to go back to that in a moment. And secondly, that it really causes them significant harm. So that's the kind of parameters that we're looking at. The kind of personal characteristics that we're talking about here are very broad. So we're talking about uh, hate on the basis of race and religion, like many of us you know, first think of when we, heard, we hear the term hate. We're also talking about gender-based violence that's based on hate. We're talking about uh, hate that's based on poverty or homelessness, um, on gender identity. So we're talking about a broad range of identity characteristics here. And when we look at the reports and the numbers, and again, the the numbers that you've put forward, one in four, uh, I think people would agree that one is too big of a number when we're talking about these types of attacks. Does it make a difference or how do we know that the attack was hate-based? Is it based on the language used, on, on the what was done during the attack? And it's not, and again, not to say that one's okay and the other's not, but how do we know it's a specific hate attack as opposed to a random attack? Um, well, I think people can know that through all different means. I think we'll learn more about how people identify that through this survey and hearing individual experiences about hate, one of the keys to our definition is that we are defining it based on somebody's experience of it. So not kind of uh, is what is the intent of the person perpetuating the hate, but what's the experience of it. And we're looking at really significant forms of, of harm here, but again, in the eyes of the beholder, in the eyes of the person experiencing it. Uh, so so how would that work then in a scenario? So what came to my mind when, when looking at that was recently we saw that horrific attack that happened at a coffee shop in Vancouver. Uh, it was around 6.20 in the morning and a man who was simply waiting in line was stabbed repeatedly and, and sent to hospital with life-threatening injuries. It, it then came to light that he was visiting. He was here from Mexico. So if he said, I felt that I was attacked because I looked Mexican or because of the way I was, was dressed or, or the way I presented, myself, would that then automatically make that a hate incident? It would, it would certainly make that something that we want to hear about. If that in the experience of, of his, in his experience, if that was based on his race or his gender identity or some other aspect of, of his life experience, then we want to hear about that. This inquiry, I want to make clear, is not about assigning blame. So we're not applying kind of a criminal law type of lens. We're not trying to find fault in individual peoples. So we're not using that kind of, can you prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? What kind of criteria would you use? We're taking a broader lens so that we can understand the problem from a, from a more holistic social perspective. And 
then therefore make recommendations and hopefully push for change that will deal with it as a broad social problem that shows itself particularly during times of crisis like the pandemic. And do you think we're seeing an increase in these in these types of hate incidents because, well, I don't know if it's because of, but are we seeing an increase during this pandemic? We are certainly seeing an increase in reported incidents. There's no question that reports have gone up significantly over this time. And we've had times where police forces have reported as high as a 900% increase over uh, the same time in the previous year prior to the pandemic. So, you know, there's all different numbers in from different sources reflecting the, the significant jump over this time. Now, that is key that it's reported hate crimes. We know that hate isn't new. It is something that's been around for a long time, unfortunately. And probably many of the forces that give rise to hate are are ones that exist no matter what. But I do think there is something in this moment, in this time of great anxiety and fear in our society, that hate has become so much more uh, part of our consciousness, for one thing, um, and has be- the reports have gone so far up. And we expect, uh, I-, I anticipate that we will learn that hate incidents themselves have gone up, whether they're reported or not. But that's part of what we're trying to learn here as well. Do you have any idea then on what the numbers might be? Like you say, these are reported incidents, what the true numbers might be? Well, the, the poll gives us a bit of a insight into that because these numbers, this is a broad public poll, um, and we reach a very diverse range of British Columbians in doing this research. So it's, it's reliable research to say this isn't about whether you reported it. This is about whether you experienced it. And the number of people who, if we broaden uh, the lens a little bit and look at those who directly experienced hate, have been affected by hate or witnessed hate incidents, we're up to 41% of British Columbians. So I think that that gives us a much better picture. We don't have, we didn't do this poll prior to the pandemic, so I'm not able to give you a direct comparator, uh, but certainly we're able to see that, that this number ca- encapsulates even those who, will, who haven't reported those incidents of hate. All right. You mentioned the online survey as well. Where can people go if they want to learn more about this or, or look at that survey? Uh, you can go on to our website. So uh, I, uh, BC's Office of the Human Rights Commissioner um, is doing this work. Um, our website is, uh, is, there's an inquiry website in particular. So if you search for our inquiry website and then uh, there or our main website as well, which is BC Human Rights, um, bchumanrights.ca um, for uh, the for the very first uh, banner, click on that banner and you will see, you'll be led right to the poll. And we really want to hear from you as British Columbians about what your experiences are. We can't do this work effectively without hearing directly um, from those who experienced hate. All right. Uh, Kasari Govender, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing this information today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. You- Well, a 19-year-old North Vancouver driver is now facing a 90-day driving prohibition, 30-day vehicle impoundment, and several other fines and costs. So what led to this? Joining us to talk more about this case is Sergeant Peter DeVries, Media Relations Officer with the North Vancouver RCMP. Sergeant, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, this is a pretty, uh, well, I didn't even know what the word is to describe this, but what led to uh, the vehicle impoundment, the fine, and the 90-day driving prohibition for this driver? It's shocking, isn't it? 225 kilometers an hour in an 80-kilometer-an-hour zone up on the upper-levels highway here in North Vancouver. It is an extreme example. 
an extreme example of a total disregard for the safety of other road users. Particularly, this was a new driver, and the person failed a roadside screening test. So you have alcohol, you have this incredibly high speed, extremely dangerous for the public. And, and that's why we wanted to catch people's attention. This is an attention-grabbing kind of uh, event. We want that message to get out there that our officers are out there every day and every night enforcing the rules of the road to keep the community safe. Uh, if you are driving after drinking, you better make sure that you are under the legal limit. And if you are traveling on the roadways, and that's not just in North Vancouver, that's throughout the lower mainland and the province, you know, traffic accidents are the number one leading cause of injury and death. And uh, if you're going to be getting behind the wheel of a car, you have a responsibility to make sure you're following the rules of the road and you're being safe and responsible. Uh, so, so just to, to back up a bit there, so 225 kilometers an hour uh, in an 80 zone, as you mentioned, this is the upper levels, high, upper levels highway. Uh, how did he go by an, an officer or how did, when did this happen? And, and can you talk a little bit about how he was pulled over? Yeah, so there was an officer who was doing some uh, traffic enforcement, just doing some stationary radar traffic enforcement up on the upper levels highway. And this is around uh, midnight and saw this car approaching and took a read on the radar and the speed of 225 showed up. So that obviously triggered him to, you know, get into action and, and pull in behind the, the driver and eventually pulled him over. And after uh, starting to deal with the driver, noticed uh, some, some signs of alcohol consumption and subsequently made those uh, demands that an officer can make to anyone who's uh, behind the wheel to provide a breath sample on, an, on a screening device. And uh, those breath samples registered fails. So that's where uh, the officer, um, you know, did the uh, roadside prohibition and and did the vehicle impoundment and then uh, over $1,000 worth of tickets. Plus, there will be additional fines and premiums that the driver will have to pay when they renew their insurance and so on and so forth. Uh, Do you know how high over the legal limit this driver was? In terms of the, uh, the alcohol consumption? Yeah. No, it's just registered a fail on the approved screening device. So uh, what that tells us is that the person's uh, blood alcohol content was at least over 0.08, which is the legal limit. Is there anything different when you're an N driver as far as, I I thought there was zero tolerance, but I was unclear if it's L driver or if there's also that with N and if that might lead to, to more consequences. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, end drivers have a number of additional restrictions on their license, including no alcohol at all. And uh, they have to display an end sign and they have some uh, rules around what times they can, uh, uh, how many passengers they can have and so on and so forth. So, yeah, they, this driver was breaching a, a couple of those provisions of the, uh, of the license as well. But, of course, the, the main concern here was the incredible high speed and the fact that uh, the person had been had been drinking. Uh, do you know what kind of vehicle this person was driving? Yeah, it was not a fancy, fast sports car. This was a family sedan, a four-door sedan. It was nothing special. And it just kind of goes to goes to show you, you know, any vehicle can be extremely dangerous on the road if it's if it's handled in a way that causes risk to other motorists. And uh, but no, this was not a special vehicle. This was just a regular family type car. 
And I, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but was there what was the response of this 19-year-old driver when he was pulled over, failed the roadside screening, uh, had the car impounded, was given the prohibition? Do you know what his response or, or what his explanation was? Well, you know, the, 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 some of these tickets have not yet had their day in court, so I can't speak too much about, you know, any of those specifics. But certainly this driver knew that he was doing something that was absolutely way beyond the pale in terms of uh, the, the amount of speed. And, and uh, anyone who is stopped by the police after going 225 kilometers an hour, especially after having been drinking, knows that they are, you know, if you want to put it in colloquial terms, they're busted. And I'm pretty sure that this driver knew as well as soon as he got pulled over that that's what happened. All right. Well, Sergeant, thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this. It is just a bit mind boggling when you look at the details of this, but also a good reminder uh, about just how dangerous that can be. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jill. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.